Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Football Talk from the Yorkshire Post, where we will be discussing some of the latest talking points from the world of football with members of our football writing team. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Chief Football Writer for the Yorkshire Post, Stuart Rayner, to discuss all the latest news from the European Championships and the latest developments affecting our local clubs. Don't forget, you can keep up to date with all the football news across Yorkshire and beyond by logging on to our website at www.yorkshirepost.co.uk forward slash sport, as well as checking out our various Twitter feeds, the main one being at YP Sport. If you search for Yorkshire Post Sport, Yorkshire Post Football, or even Sheffield Sport on Facebook, you can find us there as well. If you have any questions for our writers, you can get in touch using those various Twitter or Facebook pages, or email us directly with the subject matter as footballtalkpodcast at yp.sport at jpimedia.co.uk. Yorkshirepost.co.uk This week I'm joined by Chief Football Writer for the Yorkshire Post, Stuart Rayner, and Let's start with the Euros, uh, which have now come to a close. And my first question to you, Stuart, is um, how do you think the England team have performed during the course of this year's tournament, being able to get to the final, but unfortunately uh, coming unstuck at the um, at our nemesis uh, of penalty shootouts? Well, I, th- I think they had a great tournament, a great tournament on and off the field. Um, they conducted themselves brilliantly and they played, they played really well. I mean... You know, we, I think, I think in this country, as soon as we get a sniff of a major tournament, I think we all tend to get a bit overexcited about what England are going to do. But you know, as, as Gareth Southgate um, pointed out in in the um, in the tournament itself, it's not as if we have a great pedigree in, in tournaments. This was the first time England had ever reached a a major tournament final, and um, and it was it, it was a I said it was an excellent achievement to to get there. Uh, Italy were the better team in the final, but you know England at least pushed them to uh, to penalties. And you know we mustn't overlook the fact that Italy themselves are an extremely good team and were and were very worthy winners. But I think England can take a lot of a lot of pride from the fact that they are progressing as a football team. You know, I think I think in Southgate's playing days, uh, I think England were very much a quarter final team. Um, but he's he's taken charge of three tournaments now. Mm. The World Cup, the Nations League, and and now this uh, European Championship, and England have finished fourth, third, and second. So clearly, things are going in the right direction. Um, Kyle Walker's the old man of that squad, and he's only thirty-one years old. So that that tells you that this is this is not a squad that um, that is going to be broken up and it's coming to the, to an end. You know, there is there is the there is the real possibility for this this squad to, to continue progressing. Uh, I think they've got a good manager to do that. I think I think there are areas they need to progress. Um but um but I do you know I do feel I do feel that um that things are in place for that for that to happen. So uh, I think um, yeah I think they can be very pleased with it. Hmm. And um your your views on on the on the tournament as a whole uh, with regards to um the way that it was conducted from all the teams and I think it would also be quite good to to point out that the refereeing, in my opinion, for, for this year's tournament has been absolutely brilliant. Um, and do, do, do you agree with that, Stuart? I, I agree with that, and I'd go one step further. Uh, the video assistant refereeing has also been really good mm. and a real example to English football as to how to do it properly. Um, you know, there's still been there's still been odd odd decisions where you just think how did the how did the VAR not intervene in in that one and and you know 
moments that make you think, well, what's the point in <laughs> what's the point in a VAR if you can't see an obvious dive like that, mm-hmm. or that that was a fair tackle? But by and large, yes, it's been excellent. I think it, I think it's shown up the standards of English football uh, in terms of refereeing uh, and, and particularly VAR. Uh, and I just hope that you know Mike Riley and his team really study what happened. Obviously, Anthony Taylor and Michael Oliver were involved off the, on the field, and, and people like Stuart Atwell off it. I hope they get together and, and really, really learn the lessons of it. Um, yeah, there, there, there was a good, there was a good balance in the refereeing. I think between you know, um, between letting the game flow but not letting it get ridiculous. Obviously, you don't want to see flair players kick, kicked off the field. Um, and with, with the VAR, it was um, noticed notably quicker than uh, the decision-making process than it is in England, and yet it didn't feel as though um, we were suffering for decisions being rushed. Mm. Um, so again, I think that's I think that's something we can learn from. Mm. Yeah, and I think it, it's definitely something that, um, like you said, the English league can can look towards and hopefully improve um, the way that they handle VAR. I mean, oh, okay, you're gonna get the odd missed um, decision, but if it's quick and the majority of the decisions uh, get dealt with quickly then it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, I'm not a fan of VAR. I'd be much happier if we just stopped it altogether. But mm-hmm. if we're going to have it, at least have it done properly. Exactly. Uh, and I say, I, I do I do think it was, I do think it was, it was done better in this tournament. And, you know, to, to, um, to answer your question about the ter- tournament as a whole, mm-hmm. I think it was, a, I think it was a really good tournament. You know, I'd, I'd written before the tournament that, we need, as a football community, we needed a good tournament, yeah. uh, an uplifting tournament. You know, and I think it was, I think it was always going to be better for the fact that crowds were in. You know, it, you only had to th- those of us who were fortunate enough to be at one of the end of end of club season games with fans in. You know, you only had to be at one to see how much fans fans in the ground just improved everything in mm. terms of the the spectacle and the football, and that that was certainly the case. Um, you know, obviously we, we had it could it could have been you know one of the worst stories ever. It turned into the the good news story of Christian Eriksen, uh, you know, uh, yeah. recovering from his from his cardiac arrest. Mm. We saw some really entertaining football. We saw a few shocks, which was good. Mm. We saw some of the best players in the world performed really well. Obviously, we saw a few struggle as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't I don't think again I was a little bit concerned that we were going to see a really just a tournament of some really knackered teams with you know the the, the best teams with the best club players out, out on their feet at times and that was maybe a factor in some of these some of these shock results but I, I don't think it was sort of an overriding factor it, it it didn't feel like a tournament that lacked energy obviously the I mean the format was abysmal I think we knew it was going to be abysmal mm. before covid mm-hmm. you know dragging teams out to Azerbaijan and then back into western europe to play to play games that was that was ridiculous that was totally unfair on the fans mm. um so that you know that th- that wasn't gr- wasn't great but um i say by and large uh, i think it was a really a really uplifting tournament and i think I think from a personal perspective just the sort of tournament i hoped it would be mm. and um fr- from an england perspective um what do you think that the the England team as a whole can take from this uh, from this experience from basically getting to the first final since nineteen sixty six, and the, the the journey that they had uh, during this tournament. 
Well, they can take a lot of experience from it and they can take a lot of confidence from some of these um, achievements that they've ticked off the list. Um, you know, you, you, you often find with teams, you know, when a team wins a, 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 a league championship or a, a cup or whatever, that they have to fail first. You know, it's, to take an example, you know, look at look at Leeds United winning the championship uh, a couple of uh, last year mm-hmm. on the back of the playoff disappointment of the year before. They, you know, they've learned from that. They've they, they've built on it. You can you can pick loads and loads of different examples of that over time. And and to have never experienced a final before, your first one is always going to be difficult. And mm-hmm. I think, in fairness. Um, despite having started the game very well, England didn't play to their best in the final. I think that's I think that's fair to say. But it's it's not unnatural for that to be the case when you've never experienced that before. Next time next time they're in the final, fingers crossed there is a next time, they will have experienced it before. Just as, you know, it, that was the thing about the Denmark game. They'd experienced a semi final before. So um so yeah, I think that I think they'll take a lot from that. And and the important thing is that those individual players will take a lot from it because, as I said earlier, most of those most of those players will hopefully be in Qatar. It's not it's not the case that five or six of them are going to retire now, and it's someone else who'll will be playing the first final. Mm. And as I said, you know, they they, were, they went into that final, with, uh, sorry, into that tournament with a lot of um, potential mental hang-ups. You know, they'd never been to a European final. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, as a country. We'd not been to a major final, as you said, since '66. We'd never actually properly won a, a tournament game in the European Championships. The only tie we'd won was on penalties. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, never beaten Germany in a in a knockout game since 1966. All these mental barriers have been cleared, and mm-hmm. the fact that they have been cleared, uh, you know, along with things like winning a penalty shootout at the last World Cup should also give them confidence that the next time there's one, oh, you've never done this before, um, there should be even more belief that, well, we can do that because we're, we're a team that can, that can you know, knock off these, knock off these first achievements. Mm. So, um, so, yeah, I think, I, think, I think mentally as much as anything else, um, I think there's a lot they can take from it. And I think, you know, I don't think it was probably an issue with the players. I think it was perhaps more an issue with the public, but um, they can, they can take even more confidence from the fact that they have a manager who has a way of playing, which whether people like it or not mm. works. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that's, that, that's a, that's a big, big deal. You know, that when, when your manager makes a substitution or makes a, a big call in terms of tactics or whatever, that you actually believe this is going to work. And that, you know, you often see that with the, with the big nations that can, that can drive them through these tight games because they've just got that belief that, we, as I said, they've got that experience that we've done this before and they've got that belief that we know this is going to work because that bloke on the touchline has won a World Cup before or, in, in this case, has taken England to a final. Uh, I think that, that is really important too. And it, to be honest, we shouldn't really be saying this about a manager who took England to a World Cup semi-final three years ago, but it, it still felt as though he had more to do in terms of, I say, in terms of convincing more, more the public, actually, than the... Mm. Than the uh, the players but you know at the start of the tournament I think there were a lot of reservations about we talked at the time podcast at the time about the team selection about Croatia but I think I think by the end of the tournament I think the positivity in the stadium was such that 
all those doubts had sort of been put to rest and it was almost a case of, well, actually, we, we, we do trust in him now. And that, that generated a very positive atmosphere, which England were able to feed off. Mm, definitely. And um, <clears throat> unfortunately, um, uh, our next topic um, is a bit of a negative um, at the end of the uh, tournament. Uh, my question for you is, what was it like on the final day, both during the match and before it? Because unfortunately, we saw some absolutely abysmal behaviour from uh, the the supposed England fans uh, trying to get into Wembley without tickets. And that almost ruined um, the, the, the event entirely. Um, and do, do you think that... Uh, it might ruin our chances of getting the um, the 2030 World Cup, which is, uh, I believe, a, a joint bid with us uh, between us and Ireland. Uh, almost certainly, it will it will ruin that. And, and to be honest with you, um, you can't uh, you can't really argue against it. Um, yeah, it, it 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 was a massive <clears throat> a massive negative of, of the tournament. So I I I went to um, eight games at the tournament, Mark, or all, all at Wembley. Mm-hmm. And um, seven of them, the atmosphere was 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 really good. It was a really positive experience. But Leon and I and I talked in one of the earlier podcasts in the tournament about you know that the, there was there was the booings of the national anthem and some of the some of the chanting and things. So it wasn't like everything was perfect. But yeah. you know, we're football fans, we we know what it's like. You know, mm. I, I do report on games, but I do go to games as fans as well. I didn't think I was going to a vicarage tea party. No. But the behaviour all through the day um, from England fans, and let's you know, let's not make try and make excuses and just say, well, you know, that they're, they're not fans. They they were fans. Mm. Some of them, at least, they were fans. They they are our problem. We can't just we can't just sort of uh, wash our hands of them much no. as we'd like to. Mm. Um, a huge number of them without tickets. Um, a huge number of them had, who had travelled from. Beyond London, this wasn't just this wasn't just London fans. You know, plenty of plenty of Yorkshire accents could be heard there, unfortunately. And yeah, it was just just moronic behaviour, really. You know, it was just you know instant idiots just add alcohol sort of thing. Exactly. Um, you know, right right from the start, I, I arrived in London at one o'clock, and it was it was already at that level. You could already sense uh, not an undercurrent, an overcurrent. You know, it was, it was just, it was just a really bad exam. You know, bad advert for British people with a drink in their hand. Quite frankly, mm. um, and and you 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 worry that um, well, not even worry. Expect actually that 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 is going to put um, a lot of people off off going to football again. You know, there were a lot. You could see lots of children there who were almost certainly at. Uh, one of one of if not their first football match, um, yeah. you know, stood there as bottles and 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 cans are flying around as you know, just all this all this idiotic behaviour, you know, fighting and 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 this you know, these this chanting and and all this sort of thing was going on. But I think there'd be a lot of I think there'd be a lot of older supporters as well. Well. Suppose of all ages, really, who just think, do you know what? I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go through that again. And that's 
that's that's really sad because I, I think up until then, you know, the way the England team had conducted itself and the way it had played, I think probably actually probably had a, a few people who'd become a bit disenchanted with football and with footballers mm. falling in love with the game a little bit uh, again um, and say and you, you worry that's you worry that's been undone really by um, by some of the behaviour and that's you know that's even before we get to the the sort of racist abuse oh, yeah. afterwards you know it was just um, it was just really really depressing on on all levels, you know, to see, and, and to be honest with you, I didn't see the worst of it, mm. um, except on, except on the internet. I didn't, I, I didn't go to Leicester square because, you know, normally on a, on a, an occasion like this as a reporter, you think, well, I, I'll get there nice and early. I'll, I'll stroll down Wembley way or I'll, I'll you know, I'll go to one of the places where the fans are congregating mm-hmm. to get, you know, a bit more sense of the, of the atmosphere and the color of the, Situation, but to be honest, it, it was at the stage where as soon as the as soon as the tube doors opened at Wembley Park and you got out of the you got out of the station, your your sole thought is trying to just get your way down this absolutely solid uh, Wembley way of, of bodies, uh, just get into the ground and, and get the beer washed out of your hair, yeah, you know, and, and concentrate on doing your job because it was it was just it was just a, an unpleasant place to be and as I say you know I'm, I'm I'm quite quite used to and quite happy being around football fans it's not that it's not that I'm, I was expecting anything unrealistic and as I say it was the eighth game I've been to and uh, quite happy with the you know by and large with the with the way the other seven were but but that was just a totally different level and just and just totally wrong and and you know a lot more should have been done on the day, obviously, in terms of the stewarding and policing. But I just hope as much is done as possible now in going through that the CCTV, identifying these people, banning them from football grounds, you know, charging them with all the criminal offences they were they were committing, and, and really, really making a stand about this because we just we just don't want to see that in our football grounds. And you know, as you said when you started with this question, it's going to cost. The actual football fans, um, the opportunity of, of seeing another tournament like this in our country, I would mm. think. I, I, you know, I think it'll be a very long time before England are forgiven enough um, to host another another competition like that, which is just really, really sad. Mm. And you, and you mentioned earlier on uh, with regards to the racist comments, and I'll be honest, after the shootout. Um, and I found out who who had missed. I I immediately told myself they are going to be waking up to a wall of abuse on on Twitter, and it's just going to be horrible for them to look at. And I mean, especially with regards to what Marcus Rashford has done over the past year, for for him to have to face that sort of abuse after missing uh, missing a penalty in a football match. It just is so unfair. Well, I'll be honest, Mark. You're a, you're a lot cleverer than me, which is um, not difficult. But um, it wasn't until I woke up on Monday morning that and, and read about these things that the penny dropped with me as to the skin colour of the players who'd missed. Um, it just didn't register with me that the guy running up to take this penalty is white or black. Unfortunately, it's it seems you know th- there seems to be a lot of um, expert amateur football coaches out there who think that um, 
the skin colour of a, of, a, of a player affects whether he can score a penalty from 12 yards. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of the it's one of the sadnesses about penalty shootouts, and that it just always seems to be, or it's probably not the case, but it, it always seems to be that pl- the players who miss are almost the least deserving. Mm-hmm. You know, you think of you think of um, you think of Euro '96 and all that. The, the great tournament Gareth Southgate had, and then he was the fall guy. You know, you know, you think of Italia '90 and mm. Chris Chris Waddle hits hits the woodwork from just about the halfway line, and yet he's one who misses. And then Stuart Pearce, this great warrior of English football, misses a penalty. And, and you know, this time, you know, you've got you've got Bukayo Saka, a nineteen-year-old kid who's had a really outstanding tournament, and then you've got Marcus Rashford, who, frankly didn't have a good tournament, but who's done, as you've already alluded to, so much good for this country, mm. you know, over the last over the last 18 months in particular. Um, you know, and, and that's not to say that that, uh, that Jadon Sancho deserved it at all as well. You know, he came in and had a brilliant um, game, first game of the tournament, cold against Ukraine. Mm-hmm. All three of them, you just, you just, you just really felt for them. It never seems, never seems to be the, yeah, uh, the, the the bad guy who was cheating his way through the, the tournament and should have been sent off in a couple of matches. Mm. It always seems to be uh, seems to be lads like that. But but regardless of who it was, I mean, it's it just it makes no it makes no sense. No. Um, you know, we, we've talked and talked, you know, on, on on this podcast and throughout the last couple of seasons about this rise in racism that there, that there really seems to have been. You know, social media is sort of a uh, enabled it you know you can get into lots of political discussions about what other things have contributed but regardless of how it's happened it's happened Mm. and still there's people in positions of power who are not doing enough about it you know the social media companies have been asked and asked and asked so many times by the football community by the wider community to make sure to demand that their accounts are verified so that we have a bit of accountability Mm -hmm. of these absolute morons who are abusing these people um and it's not happened and it's still not happening and this you know but by their own accounts they've they've deleted an awful lot of racist messages which yeah that's that's good i'm glad i'm glad they've done that but i'd rather that they stop things at source rather than waiting for these messages to be posted before deleting them putting in putting in proper deterrence. And on top of that, you know, the government has to take a lot of responsibility as well. You know, we, we, were, we were told that um, Boris Johnson called these social media companies in earlier in the week and, uh, and laid down the law to them about what they had to be doing. I then read another account from a very well-respected political writer that said actually it was it wasn't. It wasn't really anything of the sort. It was. It was a garden party where he had a quiet word with those social media companies that happened to be there. But um, talking to them, telling them off, is not enough. Just like coming out the next morning and saying this behaviour is unacceptable is not enough. These guys write the laws of our country. They should be forcing these companies to do these things. Mm-hmm. They should be really coming in with powerful properly enforced laws to stop these things happening. Um, football, football over the course of my lifetime hasn't done enough about racism. No. It's probably it's probably not doing enough about racism now, but it's doing an awful lot more than it was 
um, it, it, it really is doing its bit. Uh, there's a real determination. It's being let down by, say, by the government and by the social media companies. And uh, this has to be, you know, we, I don't know how many times we've said this, but we're going to say it again. This has to be the wake up call for them to actually do something about this. Mm. Has to be. Because, again, if if they didn't take uh, note of the um, social media boycott from basically every football mm. team in this country, then yes. w- what does it take? D- does it take another situation like this where three more young, talented footballers are criticised just because of the colour of their skin for it to finally sink in for these companies? Or uh, is it possibly going to take even worse? I mean... We, we, we just simply don't know what it's going to take until they, they realise that this has to be stamped out. Well, yeah, and, and of, of course, Mark, you know, you're talking about three talented, you know, high-profile footballers, but all all those all the, those incidents are doing is just highlighting what's happening to ordinary black people in this country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it, it's not... It's not unique to to these guys. I mean, Jaden Sancho said, I forget his exact words, but essentially said, "Well, this is this is almost just normal now. Now for him, for him as a as a black person who hasn't even lived in this country for the last couple of years." But um, yeah, that that's the thing. It, 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 football is only highlighting a, a wider problem. So it's it's not about looking after footballers. No. You know, people like. People like Tyro Mings and Raheem Sterling and Marcus Rashford aren't doing what they're doing, and you know, people like Jordan Henderson as well. Some of the some of their white teammates aren't highlighting these inequalities to protect footballers. They're highlighting these inequalities to protect ordinary human beings in this country. It's mm. it's not, you know, it it it's not an issue football can ignore. But obviously, as we always say, it's not only a football issue. Football's just doing its bit to show the leadership that isn't coming from the government, you know, and, and people like people like Gareth Southgate and Tyron Mings and, and, and people like that are providing far more leadership on this at the, at the moment than the people we actually elect and pay to be leaders. And that's, that's a really, a really sad state of affairs. And, and frankly, those people should be absolutely ashamed of themselves and the, the contributions they've made either by, you know, as, as as Ming said about Pretty Patel, by stoking the fire yep. or by simply doing nothing. Hmm. You know, and because uh, they're, they're 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 both they're both damaging and and uh, yeah, it's it's just it's just not on. I mean, you feel a bit helpless. You feel a, it feels a bit pointless almost just just talking about it on a podcast. Hmm. But um, you know, something those above us really have to do something because as I say football's trying its best but it, it it Sunday showed it can't do it alone no no something has to be done from everyone in this community to make sure that it it, it stops I mean it, it just has to be done I mean you know the one the one good thing is obviously you know as well as sort of um shining a light on a lot of the you know horrible stuff in this country the reaction around the Marcus Rashford mural and just the reaction in general has also shown there's a lot of good as well. You know, mm. it's not, it's not all negative, but unfortunately, you know, like those imbeciles um, at Wembley, it's the it's the idiots that 
who, that's the image that that, that that sticks with you and just spoils it for everyone else. So, uh, so, so yeah, action has to be taken. Yeah, and um, looking closer to home, um, I see that Marcus Shop has done his first press conference as Barnsley manager. Um, did, did he happen to mention uh, what he plans uh, for for the club uh, and what uh, basically what he sees um, for the club's future? Yeah, obviously he was, was asked a lot about that, and, and um, he was in some ways um, a bit vague, but not not necessarily in a in a bad way, but um, it sort of. I, so I was there, and I was there for Valerian and Israel's first one, and and the contrast was was quite notable. Uh, I mean, there were very different circumstances. I think Ismail came in on a on a weekend and had a first game on a Tuesday, where shops come in and had a. And it's got pre-season and all this sort of thing. But Ismail, straight away in his first press conference, it was kind of, you know, we're going to play 3-4-3. This is, this is what we're going to do. He clearly he clearly had an idea in his head. It was different to the way Struber had played his predecessor as, as manager. And all through Ismail's time as Barnsley manager, there was a very clear way of playing this this vertical football that you know we've talked about a number of times on this podcast. Some people liked it, some people hated it, but they knew what they were doing, and they and they got very good at it. Mm. Shot by contrast, um, said that he didn't know what formation he was going to play. Essentially, uh, that he was going to come in and find the best way of playing for the players he'd got. So um, they're both they're both valid ways of doing things. They're just mm-hmm. they're just very different ways of doing things, you know. When Shop was at Hartberg, his previous club, um, they tended to play a back four, Dif- different different variations essentially of four five one. So that that would be a change if he was to bring that in. But it, it doesn't, unlike his spell, it doesn't seem like he's got a Marcus Shop way of playing in terms of formation. And I'm going to come in and and do it. But in in terms of you know, sometimes I think nowadays I think we get a bit caught too caught up in formations and trying to be amateur tacticians and all this sort of stuff and, mm-hmm. and, and kind of lose sight of the the more important things. And in terms of in terms of how he wanted them to play, he was quite clear. It, it, he kept mentioning the word intensity, whether he was talking about, you know, his relationships with the players or, or more pertinently in this case, how he wants them to be in, on the field, intense, intense, intense. He talked about he wanted them to keep all the, best pressing elements of the East Mail style. So they're clearly going to be a high pressing team. I don't think Barnsley were ever going to appoint a coach who wasn't that that's that's the way they're that's the way they go about things. But he talked about being uh, a bit more struber like in possession, mm-hmm. you know, a bit more perhaps a bit more patient in the build up, a bit more focused on the build up play rather than the the directness of the Ishmael way and he didn't it, it wasn't a case of him saying I'm going to play like Struber rather than like Ishmael he, he said well there's these two ways of playing they've both been successful in the past we're going to have to find sort of where in between them we we lie so I say there, there, there were certainly clues about about how he's going to play and I don't, I don't think that I don't think that intense well clearly that intensity is not going to drop if if Marcus Schopp has anything to do with it but uh but tactically, this, this, it feels like the next few weeks are going to be a bit of bit of sussing out. Um, 
in terms of uh, in terms of how he how he thinks he he's going to do things, and it'll be interesting to see to what extent that influences the players that are brought in, mm. or that or if the players that are brought in will influence the style of play. Because of course at Barnsley, it's quite a collegiate approach to signing players. It's not just down to the coach. Um, but yes, um, so it was you know in some in some ways it was quite illuminating. In other ways, it was uh, it was a bit wait and see. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think what what I can get from that is basically what we're going to have to do is wait and see what happens um, at Barnsley uh, in the next few weeks with regards to players coming in and leaving, and then we'll be able to sort of get a sense of what kind of formation and what kind of style uh, we'll be getting from uh, from Barnsley. Yes, I mean what what he did say in terms of players leaving was that uh, essentially he, he didn't want and wasn't expecting any more senior players to leave. I mean, they've, they've already lost Mowit and Solbauer, so, you know, and DK's loan has come to an end, so they have lost some key players, but uh, he gave the impression uh, that he wasn't expecting any more players to be sold from underneath him. Uh, and it, it was going to be a case of case of working with the, the players he's already got, finding the, finding the best use of them. I mean, we... We talked on last week's podcast, didn't we, about the the potential of uh, changing the position of uh, Callum Styles to to fill a hole left by Alex Moat, and he did, he did say he was he was looking to replace Moat in the transfer market. But nevertheless, uh, yeah, I think there will be a bit of you know in the way that Struber looked at looked at Styles and 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 uh, and decided to make him a, a left wing back. He might he might have to go through the same process again with with, with changing position and and others as well, uh, but I, you know I, I don't think it's such a bad thing that managers uh, don't come in with preordained ideas and, and 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 look to get the best out of what they got. Um, that's not a criticism of, of Ismail because what he did work really well, but I don't I don't think it's such a bad thing that um, shops taking that approach. No, no. And uh, our next. Uh discussion topic uh, focuses on Sheffield Wednesday, uh, who, although have had their transfer embargo lifted, uh, the financial problems at the club um, seem to be ongoing uh, after their latest accounts uh, reported a £23 million loss and the EFL have stepped in over uh, over the wages issue with regards to their players. Um, how do you see this developing, Stuart? Well, it's a worrying time for Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, one thing to say about the accounts is they're they're the accounts for the let's get this right, uh, 2019-20 season. So they're 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 quite old. Mm-hmm. You know, Sheffield Wednesday's squad and wage bill and all this sort of thing have changed a lot since then. But uh, you know, the fact that they've there's, there continues to be all these issues with players' wages going unpaid and what have you, there are definitely still big financial problems at that football club um, and there'll be big footballing problems as well um, this embargo is obviously going to make it harder to rebuild the squad although uh, to be honest it's it's more about stopping clubs buying players and I don't think this season there's going to be many league clubs particularly not ones in Sheffield Wednesday position who are going to be buying players anyway it's more about free transfers and mm-hmm. And loans, um, but yeah, I mean, c- clearly the, the financial model at Sheffield Wednesday is is not working at the moment. 
you know the the championship has just been an absolute basket case for for years and and, and Wednesday have been one of the biggest culprits in terms of spending far more on, on wages than they were than they were bringing in uh, in income exacerbated obviously by the pandemic now at least the gates are open uh, and hopefully hopefully uh, dropping down a division means uh, Sheffield Wednesday can start competing at the right end of the table again and and, and hopefully that that draws fans in but you know there is a lot of disillusionment with the club ownership because of because of all these things, because of the footballing issues and, and all that, and that is going to put people off. So they, they, they really need a proper a proper reset. Um, whether whether they have whether they can do that with the with the uh, off field management at the moment, I don't know. Um, we're going to have to give them the, the benefit of the doubt because there's, there's not going to be many buyers queuing around the block to buy that club at the moment. So. Uh, we're going to have to hope that they that they can. Uh, it's going to be difficult for them on the field too. You know, we've talked in the past. I'm, I'm very much of the opinion that Darren Moore is a, is a very good manager for them, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and can do a really good job for them. But you just need to look at League One, not just now, but in years gone by. It is a really difficult division for mm-hmm. big clubs to get out of. You know, when Sheffield Wednesday have gone in have dropped down in the past it, it hasn't always been a come back come back the next season you know just like it wasn't for their the neighbours Sheffield United they were down there for six years you know Leeds Leeds didn't come straight back up no. uh, clubs like Nottingham Forest haven't and, and now you know you've got teams like Sunderland and Ipswich and Portsmouth who will regard themselves as too big for League One mm. you know in, in a purely footballing and historical sense they're right you add Sheffield Wednesday to that mix and, and others as well, and there's not enough. There's too many of them for them all to go up next season. Mm. Um, it's 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 going to be a difficult season. Mm. Um, I say, I just I, I hope I hope that they're they're able to get the wage bill under control. That they're able to get the number of people that, you know through the gate that uh, that sort of make, makes it. You know, possible to, to to balance the books, but I I, I worry it might be a, a a painful process and and not a quick one. Hmm. Um, so I, you know, that being the case, I hope as well that there's a lot of um, a lot of patience with uh, with Darren Moore and with with no doubt a lot of you know young players who are either new to senior football or new to playing for a club of Sheffield Wednesday stature. Hmm. I think I think. I think people are going to have to be patient. Hope it's a hope for the best. Hope it's a it's a quick one year loan in the in League One, but but brace themselves for for something more lasting. Yeah, exactly. And um, following on from uh, this news, our final topic for this week um, is that Hull City have unfortunately been added to the EFL's transfer embargo list. And my question to you is, um, how do you actually see this impacting them ahead of uh, the new season, which is literally just around the corner? Well, I mean, Hull City is, is another club that uh, hasn't been run uh, very well the last few years and whose owners are not are not popular with the fans, and understandably so. Um, again, they've they've kind of... Well, they, whereas Sheffield Wednesday have, have, have suffered a bit from... Uh, from trying to get back into the Premier League, Hull City have probably suffered a bit from dipping into it and, and the sort of legacy of 
too short a stay in the Premier League in terms of the, how that just distorts the finances of clubs. But um, how's it going to impact them? Well, let's be honest about it. The, the last couple of years in particular, um, you know, we think of uh, the Jared Bowen transfer window mm-hmm. onwards in particular. This has not been a club which has been chucking money around, signing lots of lots of big money players. Again, you know, I, I, I say I think I think for all clubs, not just clubs in there. In their position, I think limiting clubs to free transfers and loans is not really going to alter things very much. I think um, I think hold we're probably always going to be open to the possibility of um, selling a player if a if a big bid came in, as I say, as they did with as they did with uh, with Bowen eighteen months ago, whatever it was now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's still the case. Obviously, now they've got the added incentive that. If they do that, they can uh, get this loan paid off uh, and uh, and get the embargo lifted. Mm. But um, yeah, I don't I don't think things have fundamentally changed. I think it's still about being clever about you know getting getting players in on loan. Um, Nathan, they've got Nathan Baxter from from Chelsea, and they've uh, they've brought in Ryan Longman from Brighton. And you know, on paper, they look like two high pedigree you know loan players who can. Who could strengthen them? Um, they've got a lot of players who uh, should have developed a lot for last season in League One. Some of them joined the club in the Championship and looked a bit out of their depth. Now, hopefully, now they'll those guys will come back stronger and say being added to by other guys who who you know look capable of proving themselves as Championship players. So I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's a disaster. You know, we're we're looking at uh, a football league that's in a bit of a in a bit of a mess financially, like all almost all British businesses are, just trying to you know survive through this horrible COVID time we've we've lived through. But um, they've got they've got good foundations on the field in terms of in terms of the season they've, they've just had. You know they've, they've they've shown a lot of patience to a manager who, whilst whilst a lot of fans still aren't completely sold on him, I think he's. I think he's repaid a lot of that by uh, by winning League League One next year, mm. uh, and he has been able to make a few signings. I say you are still allowed to bring in bring in uh, free transfers and loans, so that he has been able to, to to strengthen the squad. Obviously, lost a, lost a few as well, the likes of uh, of Reece Burke and Jordi Device. But um, I, I I think it's not going to be an easy season for all by any means. It is difficult making that jump from League One to the championship, you you know, you only need to ask any Rotherham United fan about that. But uh, I think I think they've got a fighting chance, and I don't think I don't think the embargo, whilst it's obviously not great, um, I don't think that's going to hamper them that much. Hmm. Um, but you know, players are players are going to step up. It's okay talking about their potential to show themselves as championship players. They're going to have to do it. Um, and yeah, it's I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be despairing as a whole fan about this embargo, no. um, but um, yeah, clearly, obviously, it doesn't help. YorkshirePost.co.uk.
Many thanks to Stuart Rayner, who will doubtless join us again soon for more discussions on the Yorkshire football scene. But don't forget you can keep up to date with all the football news across Yorkshire and beyond by logging onto our website at www.yorkshirepost.co.uk forward slash sport. Or if you search for Yorkshire Post Sport, Yorkshire Post Football or even Sheffield Sport on Facebook, you can find us there as well. If you have any questions for our writers, you can get in touch using those various Twitter or Facebook pages, or email us directly with the subject matter as footballtalkpodcast at yp.sport at jplanmedia.co.uk. As ever, many thanks for listening, look after yourselves, and bye for now. <laughs>